Welcome to the Quaredev Midcast with your host Adam Matwatch. I would like to introduce our two testing gurus today, uh, Isabel Evans and Sue Atkins, two testing gurus in the topic of um, uh, testing designs and uh, actually everything in testing uh, as I because both of them uh, have um, better and more experience than uh, than uh, I have uh, in the IT uh, industry and in testing especially. Uh, they I call them gurus because uh, you recognize probably both of them uh, from many different great conferences. Um, I had the pleasure to meet um, Isabel Evans uh, personally and again Eurostar is not paying me, but I think they should, because yet again, I have met Isabel on Eurostar, as actually all of my guests till now. Uh, and um, thanks, to, thanks to that, uh, I'm able to uh, introduce them uh, today. We have a great topic, uh, but uh, we, you will see what's the topic um, today based on the first question I will ask and the, the conversations that we will have. Uh, Without further ado, Isabel Evans, independent quality and testing practitioner uh, with more than 30 years of IT experience in financial communications and software sectors. Uh, she focuses on quality management, software testing and user experience. And Sue Atkins, uh, which is a highly motivated test consultant, having spent last 20 plus years evangelizing uh, about testing. Uh, so, girls, uh, I would like today to start with a question. Uh, what are test design techniques? Um, so, yes, what is a test technique? Um, there's lots of different ways we could go around describing this. And one of the things I'd like to talk about to introduce that is the difference between test planning and test design. So, in test planning, I would say what we're doing is thinking about budgets, and timescales and goals and overall what are we trying to do what are we trying to achieve and how much resource do we need uh, time money people whatever in order to achieve it whereas in test design what we're doing is looking at that goal and the level of risk and we're we're deciding how we're going to do the testing in detail so in test design in a test uh, design um, activity, we would be looking at what it is that we want to test, what is the um, object under test, the system or the software or the hardware or whatever, and what can we do to exercise that or challenge it um, in order to meet the goals of our testing. So it, a test design activity is in the nitty gritty of deciding what it is we want to do as opposed to planning the budget, the time scale, and so on. I'll pass to Sue now, I think. Um, yeah, and I, I obviously totally agree with what you've just said there in terms of the, uh, the test planning and the design. Um, <clears throat> test techniques also tend to get, um, uh, I was going to say confused with, uh, but that's possibly not the best terminology, but you will often hear um, approach and methodology. So we have the idea of test design, uh, test techniques, test, uh, test approach and test methodology. It's looking at um, the rough distinction between them. I don't think there is a clear definite distinction, 
but understanding that there there is a distinction around uh, something such as inspections. Uh, inspection is both a technique and can also be viewed as a, a an approach and a methodology. So looking at the the naming and how you would use them um it's a it's a fine line but then looking at what you're actually doing uh gives you an idea as to whether you're thinking more in terms of a test design technique um or an approach or a methodology so fitting all of that together it does come back to isabel talking around the test planning because generally in the test plan we'll be thinking about how we want to, um, I was going to say, approach this. Um, so we're starting to confuse the terms, terms already. But uh, the, the test plan is going to be looking at this is the thing that we've, this is the job that we've got to do. This is the uh, goal that we want to achieve. And what are we going to use out of our toolkit that uh, allows us to, test that in the most efficient and effective way. Okay. Can, can I come back in there? Because Sue and I both do a lot of work with fabric. We both do work with wool and uh, fabrics. Uh, Sue does spinning and weaving. I do patchwork and embroidery. And if I use that as an analogy, supposing you have a goal, which is making yourself a warm bed cover. Okay, that's your goal. And you've maybe got a budget of 100 euros. So in your plan, you've got to think, well, my goal is I've, I want a warm bed cover and my budget is 100 euros and I want to do it in the next two weeks. That tells you something about what approaches you can take. And then in terms of your approach, it could be actually I'm going to go and buy a blanket or it could be I'm going to make a patchwork quilt, or it could be I'm going to weave myself something. So that's your approach overall, your methodology, the, the way you're going to do it. And then when you get down into uh, looking at the design of how you're going to do it and, and the technique, supposing I decide to do it with a patchwork, um, that's my approach. I design my patchwork. I maybe look at what colors, fabrics I've got, what options I've got and so on. And then within that, depending on the time scale and my level of skill and what I know already, I might use a te technique which is going to give me um, a patchwork which is just simple squares joined together. Or I might use a technique which is going to give me what's called a log cabin uh, pattern which is more complex and so the technique is the is the detail of what you're going to do in order to build the thing which is going to meet your goal or you could do an analogy with cooking your goal might be to have a hot meal you have a you, you decide therefore you're going to make some soup um, you have a recipe and it asks you to um, prepare vegetables for the soup and you could chop them roughly with a knife or you could grate them with a grater or you could put them through a chopping machine there are different techniques you can use to get to a similar result does that does that make sense I, I think you? 
uh, I, I think yes. Uh, and uh, if I understand correctly, so test planning is putting like a boundaries on something that later on will be test designs, right? Because when you first to have a plan to know what test designs you can use in that plan, what resources do you have, how much budget do you have, and so on, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so as I understand, that also uh, means that the test design techniques are very um, re rely very much on the budget that we have, right? The time scale and so on and so forth, right? So, when we have a short time scale, there will be a different design uh, test design technique, and when we have a bigger one, it might be a different one, right? Mm -hmm. And also, level of risk. You'd use different techniques depending on your level of risk. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Yes, I, I like that. Um, I like the uh, analogy, Isabel, in terms of uh, the obviously the weaving, spinning, knitting, uh, tapestry um, analogy, because the techniques can stitch all of that together. Um, so it, it helps build that that fabric as to what it is we're doing regarding testing. So based on your experience, what's the best time to start thinking about the design techniques, right? When we think about the, the, the planning of everything and so on, what's the best time when we should start thinking about the test design techniques to select the one then and so on? I think from, from my perspective, and obviously Isabel can add to this, but um, as with everything related to testing, it's as early as possible. Um, and I think, as if you become more familiar with the different techniques that are out there, as I say, for me, they are a part of my toolkit. So I have um, an, another string to my bow is that I am a, a qualified electrician. So I have um, a lot of actual physical tools that I can use. When it comes to uh, testing in the software testing world, I have these um, virtual head tools, if you like. So at first engagement with the possible application that you're looking at, the possible application or the possible system, that's when techniques will start to come into to view. Um, you know, if I'm confronted with a system that, uh, for example, one I've tested in the past was an air traffic control system. So as soon as you, uh, as soon as a particular system is mentioned to you, certain techniques will come into view as to being, this would be a good fit here. Um, so it's uh, as soon as possible, as soon as you've got uh, a, a, a whiff of a particular system, then it's, uh, that's when we start to think about the, the techniques that we're going to be looking at. I have a follow-up to that, but uh, Isabel, would you like to add something, or can I can I can I hit back with a question? Um, I have, yeah. I mean, I I would completely agree with what Sue's saying. Um, I think your some of the test techniques are also closely related to system design techniques. So actually, at the point that people are putting together the design for a system, some of the techniques that could be being used there give rise to system design and can also give rise to test design um, and furthermore the test techniques are very good at finding errors right back at the beginning there finding um, gaps in people's ideas 
finding problems in system designs, uh, finding wrong problems and errors and omissions in user stories and requirements, um, and also can inform people's budgetary decisions. So I mentioned risk earlier. Um, and you can have discussions with stakeholders where you're saying the amount of budget you spend on testing is related to the level of risk that you perceive in the system. And if you, if you change the techniques that you're going to use to design the tests, you may end up with a bigger budget for testing, but a lower residual risk. And on the other hand, if, you want, if, if you're feeling like taking risks, we can do less testing with simpler techniques, but you know you'll be taking more risks. And you can, you can plot, plot that out and come to a decision about what stakeholders feel comfortable with. And actually, it can, so those discussions can drive budgetary and resourcing decisions. So, Adam, sorry, you had a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, now I have so many questions, but uh, I would like first to, 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 to ask the first one mm, to Sue, because you mentioned something which I really like and which reminds me a, a metaphor, that if you have a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. And, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you mentioned that uh, when you, uh, you start thinking about the test design techniques as early as possible, and you can think about, okay, so this technique will be used. How to avoid situations like that when I pick the wrong tool only because I'm really expert in this tool and there might be a much better one for the problem that I approach? Uh, that, that is a really good question. Um, you will naturally, I think, fall into the um, every problem looks like a nail when you have a hammer um, because it, it, certainly in my experience, you tend to find certain techniques that work well for you and your experience. So um, the projects that I've worked on, I've got certain techniques that um, I will fall back on. Um, I will tend to use pretty much all the time. But in most cases, they are valid techniques for those situations. There are, there are a couple of really good techniques that we'll get to a little later on that are um, generically good they no matter what you do with them they're, they're pretty good um, how to avoid the hammer and nail situation is understand a good number of techniques so don't just focus on being the best person for classification trees um, look at all the different techniques because there are so many out there and I'm, I'm always looking to see if someone has invented a new one um, but at the moment, no one's come through with anything totally different or radical, a different way of looking at things. Um, but if you broaden your horizons and look at the different techniques and become well-versed in a number of them, you should avoid the, the hammer and nail situation because you'll see where they fit well. Before we jump to uh, Isabel, thank you for that answer because uh, as, as usual, I see the... the Mm, how to say it, uh, a link to my experience when I was a beginner tester and all I knew was ESTQB. So uh, you read the, the ESTQB syllabus, there are like five or six techniques max and that's all what there is. And, uh, and to me, after, afterwards, every test, every test case and so on was, okay, okay, boundary values, boundary values. I see only boundary values and so on, right? 
yeah. or or writing flows, right? Uh, so uh, everything to me was 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 the hammer and the nail situation. That's a one thing. And uh, and again, one of the Eurostars open opened my eyes, uh, and one of the presentations after on which I was the first time to me when I heard about heuristics testing heuristics mm -hmm. uh, as a as a help. And afterwards, I started reading, and it was like, okay, there's a completely, uh, there's a second world with different test design techniques, the, the, the heuristics, and so on that, that can help you. And I agree with one thing, uh, which which uh, you mentioned, that uh, after some time, you see some similarities, right? So yeah. the, test, the different techniques, different heuristics, for example, have uh, have like a common uh, common denominator, right? You could yeah. say. Uh, uh, thank you for that too, uh, Isabel. Um, yeah, I, I think this is this is really this is a really good way of thinking about it. And I mean, to go back to the toolbox analogy, which I think is is a brilliant one. If you had a toolbox and lots of compartments in it, and you just put in lots of different sized hammers, it wouldn't really be a toolbox. Um, so you know that a toolbox is going to have a range of tools in it. You know that when you start out, it, your toolbox is not going to have a very large range of tools in it. Or alternatively, there's going to be things in, you don't know what they are or how to use them. And then you perhaps use them inappropriately. Um, and I, will, I speak as somebody who stood in the back garden once with a hammer and a screw and tried to <laughs> hammer the screw into a fence. You know, it's like, well, this isn't, doesn't seem to be working. And yet other people find it so easy. So that kind of thing happens. The other thing I would say is when you're learning, it's reasonable to learn with a restricted palette. And one of the reasons that, that boundary value analysis gets taught early is it's, it's relatively easy and intuitive to see what's going on and why that's a problem. And also, it's actually a really powerful technique. So it's incredibly simple in many respects. But that is where people make mistakes. They make mistakes in boundaries, in specification, in user stories, in code, um, and in the tests themselves, all the time when we're speaking to each other, we slide around descriptions of boundaries and we don't do it clearly. And if we all know what we're talking about, our brains just let us fly past that. We know what that means. Um, I mean, there was one quite recently with the, the early on in the COVID-19 um, saga that we're all going through, and I was reading a description of um, who should isolate in particular ways. And it said something like, oh, um, people who are over the age of 65, right? That's over, over the age of 65 should isolate. And people who are under 64 with a health condition. And then just left foot. So what about people who are 64 and 65? Are yeah. they, do they just not isolate regardless? Because that was the implication of that specification of what to do. But it was really clear what somebody had really meant is if you're older, just isolate. If you're a bit younger and you've got a health condition. But because they'd started specifying a boundary and got it wrong, if you tried to program that, it would just just completely gone wrong. So that's why I think boundary value analysis is a very, very good um, academic research has shown that it's very, very good at finding errors and it, it makes sense that it finds errors. So, um, you know, learn a, learn a restricted um, palette. The other thing I would say on the hammer and nails thing is 
I also think we tend to gravitate towards techniques that either work with the way that we think, which is different for different people, or works very well in our particular context. So if you're a very visual person, you'll naturally be more drawn to the techniques where you draw a diagram to help your thinking. And if you're a less visual person, you may be drawn to more to some of the other techniques. And so you can see if you're, you know, Sue and I have both taught groups of people. I think you'll probably agree with me on this, Sue. You look across a class, you can see on different techniques, different people just getting it and other yeah. people struggling. And it, it's not the technique per se. It's that person's reaction to the technique, whether it fits with their their way of thinking. Yes, but very much so, because um, as you say, the, the, the visual thinkers, you know, looking at uh, the visual thinkers and the logic thinkers. So there are certain techniques that people will become uh, more comfortable with. Um, mm. And then there is the risk of the hammer and nails. But it goes back to, as Isabel has just said, um, things like boundary value analysis is actually a, a really good, really strong technique. Um, so almost it doesn't matter as long as again you've got the good mix so if on a test team you have a number of people who um, are more comfortable with different techniques you're bringing in the the different perspectives so yet again you prove that the diversity in team matters and that's like the 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 the, the second or third miscast on which uh, I, I can see that clearly, that, that even in, in, when we think about the test, the test design techniques, the diverse team coming from different backgrounds, different environments, different projects and so on is, is, um, is much, much better. Okay, ladies, you, you open more questions than you close, at least in my head. <laughs> Uh, because, uh, well, firstly, I would like to share with you um, uh, an example of, because I fully agree that the boundary values is a really powerful tool and you can call it like a, one of the examples of Pareto principle when like 20% of effort gives you 80% of the results, right? So here, it's, this is a great example, I think. And uh, my example, which I wanted to share, uh, is from the job interviews I perform, and uh, I have this task which I uh, which I do. And uh, the job interviews I performed were uh, mostly on uh, interns, so people that have zero experience in testing, they don't know anything about testing, and I use these to. Uh, check how they think, right? Because some of them have the boundary values built in themselves or not. And the, 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 the task is, uh, is as follows. I have a rule in my head and I will give you a... Um, oh my God, I forgot the English name for that. Uh, okay, uh, a set of numbers that are following that, that, that rule. And you have to give me back different sets of number and I will only give you information it passes or it doesn't pass that rule. And you have to guess the rule. That's the task, right? So it's basically debugging, right? There, there is a bug and you have to guess where it is, right? And mm -hmm. my, my, my set of numbers is one, two, three. And uh, if I see testers that want to break the, 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 the pattern, they, they try with minus numbers, with different order and so on. And many of them, okay, one, two, three. So uh, try uh, three, four, five, it passes. Five, six, seven, it passes. And so, so they move on and on. And so it's not like testing boundaries, like what's below uh, zero? What's, uh, what's when we use the big numbers and so on? 
and the rule is um, only the numbers that follow each other. So uh, it doesn't matter if it's uh, plus two, plus 10, plus whatever, it always the next number must be bigger than the previous one. So that's the rule, right? And many, many times I have seen people that come and they just, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on and so forth, right? And yet again, the boundary values would solve the problem, right? So that's 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 true. And um, getting back to the the issue about which uh, we were um, talking about um, and the diversity. Um, oh my God, I had a question I forgot. Oh my God. <laughs> well, start... can I can I come in yep. just there where you were talking about the diversity as well? Mm -hmm. Because one of the other advantages of techniques is the um, I tend to find that with, with testers, you either have the, uh, the neg natural negative tester, people who uh, like to break things, people who um, tend to think almost too deep too quickly. Um, and you also have the, the positive testers who want to confirm that the system is doing what it should do. Now, we need the mix of both, but you can't just focus on those. You know, I'm a negative tester. I tend to go straight to the, oh, my God, it's broken. What can I do about it? Go right deep very quickly. Um, just again, as an illustration, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm a qualified electrician. So uh, I was rewiring a kitchen and putting uh, nice lights underneath the kitchen cabinets. And everything was working fine. I tested it all. It was all working fine. And I left it for the evening. And then the next morning, I came to look at these kitchen cabinet lights and one wasn't working. So I was straight in there with the wiring and the connections and routing it back to the circuit boards and all this. Um, and then my husband came in and he said, oh, did you see that bulb had blown last night? And it was like, ah, no. <laughs> I didn't even check the bulbs. I was straight in with the wiring. Now, for me, if, if we have techniques uh, at the root of our testing, it's going to help iron out some of those problems because it will guide me to looking for the positive things and it may guide a, a positive thinking tester to looking for the negative things. So the techniques help even out that uh, side, but we need diversity in the first place to actually be looking for both angles yeah and what I, I hear is that also techniques can help you think outside of the box because if I test on a daily basis something I might miss something and the technique might help me out to open my mind but uh, we promised some meat to the listeners and I think right now it would be good to jump into about the techniques we are speaking about because right now we were just moving on very high level right that what techniques are useful for and so forth and so on and so forth but uh, then what are your maybe the most favorite test design techniques and the least favorite test design techniques and why right we mentioned boundary values I, I agree that's a very powerful technique but uh, maybe we could uh, start with um, Isabel. What is your most favorite design technique and what is the least des uh, favorite design technique with maybe short explanations, some examples? Okay. Um, different things in the toolbox. So I'd very, I would find it difficult to pick on one. Um, however, I am going to pick on one, but 
it doesn't mean that I don't think the others are brilliant. Like, so it's like, how do I get, it's like having a favourite child. How do you do this? How do you have a favourite child? Um, don't worry, I'm it's, pick not, a, it's not the kind of question that you have one test design technique that you can take to a desert island. Which yes. one it will be, right? Oh, which would it's it be? Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, yes, overthinking this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out for decision tables. And the reason for this is they're very useful at every stage of a project. Um, they make you think hard. I mean, I think that particularly when you get a large decision table, working out all the combinations of, um, uh, of, of outcomes can, be, can take a lot of thinking. You have to really concentrate hard. It's difficult. But the outcome of it is a level of coverage of the logic, whether it's the logic in a specification or in the code, which I find uh, quite extraordinary. And it makes you think about combinations or potential combinations of events in a way that you wouldn't normally do. Um, and because it's got that power to it and that you get that large number of combinations quite quickly, particularly if you're designing tests to go into an automation suite, you've, you've got may, many more tests than you might otherwise, um, might otherwise uh, come up with. So um, for those of you who are, who are in the audience who haven't come across the technique, you look at the number of conditions there are not necessarily in the whole specification. What I often do with it is I'll look at a specification or a set of requirements or some code, and I will pick a particular area, a nugget, which is particularly difficult to understand, maybe a paragraph, and I will pick that apart, looking for all the phrases or pieces of code or whatever that indicate the condition, the cause for something happening and then separately pick out all the effects, all the actions, things that are going to happen. And when you look at how many causes or conditions you've got, that tells you how many combinations you're going to have. And it's two to the power of the number of conditions. So if you've got three conditions, two to the power of three is eight. If you've got four conditions, it's 16. 32, 64, it doubles up each time. But that bit of it always looks the same. So I keep those in spreadsheets and I can just pick that table out. It's always the same. But then as you look along that combination and you quite often what you find is some of those combinations are logically impossible. So you look at that and think that should never happen. That should never happen. It's logically impossible. So what do you do? You've got a choice then. You can either say, I'm not going to bother with that one. Or if, like me, you're completely neurotic, you think, I'm going to leave that in and I'm going to find out if there's a piece of fail-safe code. We should never get to this point. It's not logically possible. But just in case, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I made sure I've thought about it at least. 
And then you'll get some combinations that from a business point of view are not desirable. But what you found in that decision table is those might occur unless they're prevented. And at that point, you can go back to the business and say, oh, this, this might happen. Is that something you want to happen or should we be preventing it? And then you'll get other things which will give outcomes, which are outcomes that are wanted. But you'll quite often find there are two, three, four, five combinations of event which can get you to the same outcome. And if you were just doing, say, equivalence partitioning, you'd only find one of those and you wouldn't think about the others. So it's, it's an incredibly powerful technique. When you do it properly, it's time consuming. So you need to ask for budget to do it and you'll be doing it when there's a higher risk or you'll be doing it when you're reviewing specifications before code's been written to actually understand whether that specification says what people think it says. Um, so that for me is one that repays the work, but it is not easy. I have a follow-up question to that one uh, mm -hmm. because I, I remember uh, at least one company in which this technique was used, especially because it, it, it was needed. It was a security company and especially in securities when you have, okay, when you are over this age and blue, blue, blue color of ice and you wear jacket, then something happens and so on. So this is a perfect example where this technique is, is needed because you have to cover all of the combinations. But at the same time, Mm, uh, well, you not always have time to do all. So how do you prioritize, right? What, wh which ones to, to, to select? Maybe you have some, adi some additional tips to that technique, how to do it properly. Um, I would say I would do it as early as possible when there's some sort of specification, because at that stage you're doing it as a desk exercise to help you in reviewing a specification. And I would only, I would not try and do it on the whole thing. I would just do it on bits that are particularly high risk or particularly complicated. The sorts of pieces of, of text and description where it's easy to read them and think you understand what it said. But if you ask somebody else, they've interpreted it in a different way. So I, I'm very focused about where I would use it. I would not try and do all the testing unless I was in a project. Uh, I mean, Sue mentioned air traffic control. If it's something safety critical, very likely you're going to have the budget and the expectation and actually probably a regulation that tells you you're going to use that technique if it's, if it's very high integrity software. Um, so so, you've, you, so, so you, you've got your your choices there. Um, if you've got lower risk and you haven't got the budget, actually Sue mentioned classification tree. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do classification tree and you draw the classification tree, if you draw on the classification tree, all the combinations, that is very often equivalent to what you've got in the decision table. But with classification tree, you can draw it up on a whiteboard and you can say to your stakeholders or your developers or whoever else, this is the whole picture. Which of these look like the most important tests? Really and, like and we've all agreed we're not doing the other ones. So that that's, would be a way that you could you know, move between them. 
I really love that one because then it's also much easier to speak about budgeting and showing, okay, so yeah, this yeah. is how they work. We, we are not able to do everything or, or we are, but then give us such and such time and so on. So, so I really like you, that one. And, and you see there, Sue said earlier, do it as soon, think about them as soon as possible. That's a conversation to be, be having in the planning meeting for the project. It's not a conversation to be having halfway through the testing. Okay. Yeah, but that's a test technique mm -hmm. and you're using it at that point as much as anything to test the plan for the project. Okay, thank you, Sue, for that. Uh, I know that I will ask for uh, for favourite and least favourite, but let's give a voice to Sue about her uh, most favourite and then we can jump to the least favourite, right? Yeah. Well, I'll actually do it back to front slightly because um, Isabel having picked decision tables my least favorite is the front end of decision tables. Um, I said earlier on, I'm a visual thinker. I like to do, you know, do the drawings and uh, map everything out. Um, if you actually look at the technical definition of decision tables, the first part of that, you're supposed to do a drawing. The first part of that is the um, cause and effect graphing. Now, the cause and effect graphing is supposed to pull out the conditions as Isabel has done, if you like, manually from the text. But I can't stand cause and effect graphing. Um, the nomenclature of cause and effect graphing just drives me bats. And I just I've tried all sorts of different ways to make it work for me, to uh, get it to fix in my head. I just can't get that part. But if you actually look at the, uh, say, the, the definition of uh, cause and effect graphing, the second half is once you've done the graph, you then pull it into the decision table. So Isabel's favourite um, is also the first part of it is my least favourite. I, I have a distinct mental block around cause and effect graphing. Um, but as to, sorry, sorry, Isabel. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, sorry, I've just butted in, but I had to say I can't remember when I last did a cause effect graph. You know, I've, I've done them academically, as it were, but I don't do them in my practice at all. I jump straight into going, yeah. looking at looking at text or code and saying, can I pull out the causes? Um, yes, it, it, it does make me wonder who, um, I don't know who put together the, um, the cause and effect graphing and then the decision table. The decision table part is the meat of the technique. And maybe that's another point for the discussion later on in that can you get rid of some elements of the technique and still be left with the, the, the base of the technique, the, the value of the technique. But, um, you know, cause and effect graphing, definitely not my favourite. Um, but decision tables, yeah, one of my favourites too. Um, you can have quite good fun with that. As to my, my favourite favourites, well... Uh, yeah, there are so many. <laughs> um, probably, I was going to say classification trees, but as we've already gone into something that looks at um, uh, the decision table element, I would then have to push to um, state transitions, um, which to me is, you know, an all-time favourite. Um, you can use a state transition uh, diagram uh, right down at very low level, looking at um, low level code, right the way up through to business processes. So for me, a 
the state transition technique whereby we're looking at what states a system may occupy, um, the transitions that move us between the states, uh, the events and actions that actually cause those movements, um, and the resultant, um, you know, the reaction that we get um, after we've uh, triggered something. Um, that to me is just, it's so useful. It's, uh, it's useful in terms of looking for what we don't know, looking for those dead ends whereby we'll um, code ourselves into a, a, a rat hole and just you know, be left there. Um, websites where you've finished your shopping cart and then it leaves you with a page with no navigation to get you out of it. And you, you're left, well, what do I do? Do I close the web browser? Do I go back here? Um, so state transition testing for me is, uh, I think, one of the top ones that even done badly, it gives you great strength in looking at uh, where the problems may be in, in the system. And I think really good connected with that is, especially when I hear that you are a big fan of visuals, to, to draw it, draw it all, right? Draw the yeah. state transitions. Because I, I remember one of the, the defects or one of the problems I spotted uh, when I was testing and something that was so obvious to do the state transition. And it was about uh, the login process, creating account and logging and uh, resetting password and so on. And uh, we were using different flows there, right? And when I, uh, start when I tested it, it looked okay. But when I draw it, uh, there were a place where uh, two um, two different ways should lead me to the same place, but they didn't, right? And I had to ask a question: Is that correct? Because I would assume that it should work similarly in both of these cases, right? Uh, so you can find out different things thanks to drawing the state transition. So I I, I really think that yeah, that's that, that's a one that is very often underestimated, especially uh when when people don't draw it right yeah mm -hmm. okay girl. yeah it, it's also i come in with that because i love it as well and one of the things i love about it is you don't have to do it at huge detail so the little demo i always like to do for people is is to say if you're thinking about star trek and the starship enterprise um you know how how big do you think the um the state transition diagram is for, for the, the, you know, the warp drive and associated engine. And it could be hugely complicated if you get down into the detail, but you can do it with four states, which is the Starship Enterprise can be halted or going forward at normal speed or going forward at warp speed or going in reverse. And up, up, at, up at the captain's control table, You've just got buttons you hit to move between one from the other. And then you can start asking questions like saying, if you're going forward at warp speed, is it reasonable to go straight into reverse? Or do you actually have to slow down first? You know, what would happen to the, the Starship Enterprise if you went from warp speed straight into reverse? And you can start having those conversations. And it's a very, very simple diagram. Or on the other hand, you can go into minute detail and have a really complicated diagram and, and show everything. So, you know, I, I agree with Sue. I think it's a great one, Matt. So, uh, ladies, it's a beautiful place to ask one of the questions from the audience because uh, we mentioned firstly the decision tables and uh, how, the how we can change the technique. Here, again, we have one technique, but it can be applied in a that way or in a completely different way, right? 
And the question from the audience, it's from the anonymous, but uh, maybe the person would like to speak, um, then please do. Uh, the question goes as follows. Do you know any examples when people get techniques meaning incorrectly and can use it incorrectly? And I would make the question even bigger, right? Because uh, people might use the techniques incorrectly, but at the same time, we encourage them to use techniques in different ways, like a minute ago, right? With the state transitions, with the, with the state diagrams, and so on and so forth. I would only like to ask, um, do we have in the public a person that asked that question and would like to add something to it? Yeah. Hello, Adam. Oh, hello. Well, from one of the meetups, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot for the current presentation. Uh, you know, guys, when I started my career, uh, I've read a lot about different techniques, and once I discussed them with my colleagues, and I understood that I understood it absolutely differently. <laughs> and I didn't know what version is correct. Now, thank you. I understand that we can perceive it differently and we can use maybe somehow it differently. But for example, during interviews, sometimes I'm asked, tell me what this technique is about, how you should use it. And maybe there is some correct point and I don't understand it. Could you please explain somehow? Thank you. Um, so I think there's a good answer, which is the answer that all consultants use in almost all conditions, which is it depends. It depends. Um, so, so the, the you know, is there a right way to to apply a technique? And it depends. If you're taking an exam and the exam syllabus describes a certain way to do something, the chances are that the examiner is going to expect you to comply to what that syllabus says. Um, if you are in a job interview, think about the context for the organization that's interviewing you. If they're a safety critical organization, they're going to want an answer that shows that you understand the safety critical nature of what they're doing. If it's a startup that's producing, uh, I don't know, mobile apps or, uh, and they want to move fast, what they're going to want in the way of an answer is quite different to the guys working in the safety critical um, situation. So part of what you'd need to do in that interview situation is show that you understand the context. So you might pick something like state transition and talk about uh, that you can apply in different ways in different contexts. And that if in this context there's a regulation or a standard that has to be followed or there's a certain level of risk, then you would apply it at this level of detail and you would follow the standard way of doing it that's shown in, for example, the... Um, Two nine. I've got to get the number wrong. I have to look at the number now. <laughs> Seven uh, the nine standard. two five. Two, oh, it's good. It's two nine one one nine. You might uh, oh, just. Nine, yeah. Okay. I've got my books next to me instead of on a shelf. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, but it, it, in a different context, you that, that they would be looking for something something quite different, and I also think that um, you. In, even in your own practice in a single organization, 
on different projects, you might apply the techniques in different ways. And you might certainly be bringing different techniques. I mean, Adam mentioned heuristics earlier. And one of the things that's lovely about a heuristic is it's a rule of thumb. It doesn't always have the same right answer. And so it, it, there's an important thing here. You have to use your noddle. You have to think what's right this time. Um, and I mentioned about making, making soup earlier. And if I'm making a quick soup just for me to eat, the way I apply certain techniques, uh, like my technique for chopping the vegetables, might be much more rough and ready than if I was having Adam round to dinner and I wanted to really impress him. I might spend a, yeah, I might spend a lot more time. You know, my technique for chopping might be much more detailed. It's still the chopping technique. I've applied it differently because something different's going on. Is is that helpful, Violetta? Yes, thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks <laughs> and a lot. I and I'm really open for the dinner. So remember, <laughs> yeah. when they will open the flights and, and, and I don't have to have any more quarantine, then, then I, I will go for the dinner. Mm, but I would like to build up on uh, what uh, Isabel uh, said, because I think one, one thing uh, could be added to that. And it's about, um, Isabel uh, told about, uh, said about the context. And I think also about understanding the consequences of what you're doing. Because uh, in the example of the warp speed and uh, these four states, right? Uh, if you know the context, then you will bring the four, four, four warp speed. But at the same time, you need to know the consequences that you will not, uh, for example, when you use it in a more general way, then you will not cover all possible states because then you will have to get into the, the deeper, right? And as the example from, um, from uh, like the safety for the user and so on, I actually work in medical devices industry, right? Where the safety is the first principle, right? And uh, sometimes it's good to have like a bigger picture and work on a bigger level, but sometimes you get to the nitty, to, to, to the details uh, of, of the issue because we don't want to harm person. And if I use the testing design technique on too high level, then it might harm somebody, right? So you need to know the consequences. And I think if you use your head, which, well, it's hard, right? We don't like that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hard, but it's basically, that's why they pay us so much <laughs> in the IT industry, because we, we, we need to think about our actions and the consequences and the context, right? I would say that, that the, the, the context is important, but the consequences of our actions are also important. And as long Absolutely. as you can, yeah. as long as you can, uh, can explain it, I think it will be fine. So, but, but, the, but this is one of the aspects around techniques that I find is, is so, uh, so vital with techniques. They make us think. Um, regardless of what technique you're actually using, as, as we've said earlier on in the conversation, it opens it up for discussion that if you start off with state transitions as a technique, on one particular project I was working on, the, um, the analysis team had looked at the project, they, uh, the product they were creating and decided that there was, there was only about four states. And I was looking at it thinking, well, no, hang on. I think there's more than four states here. I think we need to look at this state and this state and this state. So by negotiating between what I saw as this number of states and the level of detail that I needed to go to and what the analysis team thought was a their number of states, 
that actually we negotiated, we came out with a state transition diagram that we all agreed on, and it, in, it resulted in something like 15 or 16 states that were actual states, um, as opposed to the four that they were going to be working with at the start. And that then opened up the discussion around how do we deal with these states, what moves you from one state to another state, etc. So we've gone from four to 15 um, and got, I think at that point, we got the level right with the, the right amount of information uh, that we needed. It's, it's like when you're starting to draw a picture, you start by sketching things in. You don't start by putting in a lot of detail. At the beginning of a project, particularly, you're getting ideas, you're sketching in, then you start needing to put more detail in. The amount of detail you put in, as, as Adam was saying, depends on the context you're in, depends on the level of risk, depends on the consequences. Um, and the other thing I would say on that is it's very rare that you're going to want to use just one technique. So you're going to, you're going to have maybe a base technique and you get some tests together from that. And then you're going to be saying, what else? And you might apply some heuristics. You might uh, apply a complementary technique. So you might do state transition and boundary value analysis. Or you might do um, decision table and do uh, some equivalence partitioning. And it's kind of like you, 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 you're just looking at it in different ways. Um, and exploring around. You know, you're not just using the technique and that is all you do. The, the, te the techniques give you a set, of, a set of tests that are a starting point, a good basis for automation as well, because, you know, particularly, as I said, with something like decision table, you've got a, a nice wealth of tests. But always you're going to be looking around it, what else needs doing. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's a key thing too. Ladies, I must say that you are a perfect speakers, perfect guest, because I I already have a next question for 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 you girls, and it's really closely related to what you were just saying, Isabel. Even though I didn't ask the question yet, but you already started addressing it. But before I ask this question, I would like to mention one of the, the one quote which I heard and which which really nicely resonates with the with the example from Sue from four states to fifteen states. It's about um, our role as testers in projects, and uh, somebody questioned that uh, that uh, that role. Why, why do we need the, the testers for and so on? Because, uh, well, the developers are very smart people. They have all the answers, but they don't necessarily have all the questions, and that's why you need the testers for, right? So, so when you ended up with the fifteen states, uh, well, probably the developers and the design team came up with that. But you have to start asking questions, and then you came up with the answers, which uh, which which then you can uh, re rely to. And I, ha I had a similar example in my project where uh, we were supposed to develop the the sign up flow, so just logging to the application, and it was like two weeks for that. But at the end, we ended up in uh, in two months because of all of the states that were not uh, seen at the beginning. And when we started asking this question, what happened? What will happen if we do this? Uh, okay, let me get back to you. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, developers are very smart. They have all the answers, but not necessarily all the questions. 
And now, getting back to the question I have from the public, and it's closely relate, related to the last uh, words from, from Isabel, about different techniques that you, you not always fin end up with only one. The question is from Caleb. I, I can see him here, but I will read it out loud, and then, Caleb, you can unmute. I feel like in practice, often applying one design technique doesn't necessarily map well uh, to what I'm testing. Um, Thoughts or examples of combinating, uh, combinating techniques. Caleb, would you like to add something? Yeah, the practical example that I think of is when I first started in testing, uh, I was a developer actually, but interested in testing. And I read the book, The Art of Software Testing uh, by Glenn Myers. Uh, and it was like, oh, cool, this boundary value analysis, equivalence partitioning, it, this, this is great because what I was developing at the time fit perfectly with that technique. But then many other things in testing don't necessarily fit so neatly with a particular technique. Um, so I, I was just interested in uh, perhaps some examples of combining techniques. Girls, Isabel, Sue, who would like to... Or adapting them based on what you're testing. I've done quite a lot of testing over the years is usability and user experience. So um, there's a special set of um, techniques within those areas that you use, a lot of which are from qualitative methods and are to do with observing people's behavior, um, measuring and recording people's eye movements as they're using the software, um, interviewing people. So it's a whole different slew of techniques. And I had a discussion uh, with some other people a few years ago about whether you could apply any of the, uh, I'm going to call them ordinary test techniques, um, to any of the usability testing or user experience stuff. And we were talking about boundary value analysis, and we got talking about the height of the buttons in a lift. What's the lowest they need to be? What's the highest they could be? When are they too high? When are they too low? And actually, when you start looking at that, it's not quite a boundary condition in the way that it is if you're talking about numbers. Uh, um, you know, money or dates or things like that. But you can start saying, what's the tallest somebody coming into the lift is going to be? And how far down can they reach? And what's the shortest somebody's going to be? And how far up can they reach? And then you can start getting into a discussion about, does that mean we actually need more than one set of lift buttons? Um, so you can, you, you can get some odd combinations like that off into uh, what I prefer to call the quality attribute testing and is often called non-functional, non which I, I honestly don't think is a good, good name for it. Um, in the same way, if you're looking at, um, say, performance testing, there's a whole lot of techniques which are specific to performance testing, and that's not my area, so I don't want to get into that into too much, too much depth. But you can imagine using, for example, um, a state diagram to start describing switching on, triggering different states within the system load um, to change what's happening in the performance. 
So I think there's some interesting ways you can combine some of those um, more specialist techniques in with what we, as a standard, talk about with test techniques. And I certainly think, as I was mentioning earlier, that in any case, ordinarily with testing, it's worth combining several things together. Um, just, just as an ordinary matter of practice, if you have a specification or a set of user stories or whatever else, some designs, you're going to see different parts of them will have you thinking about different sorts of technique. And Sue, what do you think? Yeah, um, definitely. Some of them sit nicely together. Um, for example, um, if we go back to the decision tables or even um, boundary value analysis, within that, we can start to look at something like syntax testing. Uh, because syntax yeah. testing combined with your your boundaries and your partitions um, is you you might have nicely divided up your inputs, but is the input itself valid? Mm. So we start to look at something like syntax testing. That's one of the the techniques that um, not a lot of people use, but could be automated quite nicely as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. I tend to use syntax testing in combination with something like the, uh, say, equivalence partitioning. If you think about classification trees, well, that's a combination of things anyway. Um, and you can take it a bit further. Um, domain testing, which is uh, a, a combination of the boundaries and the, the uh, uh, boundaries partitions um, put together into to one area. Um, so some techniques are combined anyway. Um, add to that, another one that I like to work with is um, uh, pairwise testing. So pairwise testing is brilliant at uh, reducing the number of test cases mathematically into a set that we can work with. But quite often it comes up with tests that don't appear to be very logical. So if we also use that with the de decision tables, then we start to come out with a very, uh, the only word I can think of at the moment is tight, um, a very tight test set that I have confidence in. It will exercise the decision elements, um, but do it in a concise way. So some of the techniques that I would look to combine as well. I can give a, an example of that from my own practice. This was a few years ago, working in a company where we were testing some uh, COT software, so commercial off-the-shelf, it was going to go out shrink-wrapped at that date on CDs. It was a while ago. But enormous combination of operating system, browser, um, versions of different sorts of software that this company's software sat on and worked with. It combined different things together. So you had versions of Office, versions of Adobe software, operating systems, browsers, and a few other things. Massive number of tests when you looked at the combinations. We were using Pairwise to reduce that down to a reasonable number of environments that we could set up. And... Uh, so we used a tool to do that and generate those those pairs and that those those combinations, which was fine. You end up with a small number, but then when you looked at it, 
you didn't necessarily end up with a small number of tests that reflected the pattern of how people were actually using those combinations. And so you ended up with some very peculiar combinations. Um, so we also used some profiling techniques to look at what the customer base were actually using. So we used operational profiles as a technique, combined that with the pairwise. And so we were looking at the pairs and perhaps discarding some of the options the tool had offered and making up different ones to come in that were more relevant. So in other words, we weren't just taking the output from you know, turning the handle and doing the technique, we were actually applying a different technique in to validate that that was going to be a sensible set of tests. Does that make sense, Khaled? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that, Caleb. Uh, it turned out to be a really extensive question because the time flies, girls. We have uh, only 20 minutes left. Mm, so uh, I have another one, which I think is a really good one because then we are getting back to the meat, uh, so the technique, uh, design techniques uh, themselves. Uh, to save some time, I will just read it out loud and then we can jump directly into um, the answering mode. Uh, do you have the examples of the least famous techniques uh, about which we do not speak a lot, but you use it, right? And please explain a little bit about that technique. Um, uh, so the ones that not many people maybe know about, but you are using them and you think, okay, it's, it's worth mentioning them. So maybe we can start with you. Yeah, I've, I've just mentioned one actually that I think um, is, is worth looking at and that's syntax testing. Um, because it's extremely useful it, it looks at the the syntax of an input or an output, the, the structure of an input or an output, um, the rules that apply to that particular structure. And I find it to be an extremely useful technique because, um, again, I don't think a lot of people are using it. It's only forums like this where you find out, you know, if everybody now puts their hand up and say, oh, yeah, I do syntax testing every day, then I'm, I'm, I'm misunderstood. But, you know, from my perspective, not a lot of people use syntax testing. But it's great at pulling out um, variances where people expect the input to be something and it's actually slightly different. Uh, it's also not just physical input in terms of what a, a human may enter on a keyboard, but also um, the conversation between different system components. So uh, if I'm doing, say, system integration and I want to make sure that uh, what one system is pumping out will be acceptable by the other system that's is taking it in, then syntax testing comes into uh, real usefulness at that point um, you know an, an illustration would be something like the postcodes here in the UK they follow a pattern but in London um, there are postcodes that completely destroy that pattern and it just if you didn't know that was the case uh, you could create systems that would not handle London postcodes w1ca it, it doesn't fit the rest of the postcode for um, uh, the country or uh, Sheffield I think is S1 um, which doesn't fit 
in what most people understand as being the postcodes for you know two letters two numbers so or two letters a number so syntax testing is one of the ones that i think a lot more people should be looking at and thinking about there's a question in the chat from uh, Caleb. Any recommended sources for learning about syntax testing? Except um, contact EQ, of course, right? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think it's in um, BS seven nine two five that which you can get as the testing standard, um, the draft copy. Um, I'm pretty sure there's an explanation of, te of syntax testing in there. And I would be surprised if it wasn't in Boris Beiser's book, but um yeah, let me just have a quick I've got it here. Let me have a quick. Um I, I learnt it from a long time ago, but it's I'm sure I'm certain it's in that in this in this uh seven nine two five standard. Mm. And yeah, it's it's covered in uh yeah. Boris Beiser black box testing. Yeah. That's the one I was um, thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and let me just see if it's in Tolbin's book. Oh my um, God, Isabel, you, you went really prepared, right? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> you went really prepared, right? Okay, I have it. I have the book. Oh, topic. I have this book. <laughs> that, that's, usually, that's usually what I do, is, is grab the book off the shelf, except um, I'm currently um, inhabiting my mother's office um, because uh, I have rubbish broadband at home, so... There you go. So this this book that yeah. also has um, that ha covers it as well, which is a more right. modern book. So okay. we can we can maybe put these um, resources in on the chat in a moment if I can remember how to type. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> um, idea. But also, Isabel, I can later on just uh, post it, and it will be in the description of the um, of the podcast, right? In so wh when you will listen to it, in the description there will be names of the books. That are recommended. Uh, thank you so for that, uh, Isabel. What's your take on that? What What is your uh, technique that you know, but not many people are using it? But you think it's useful? Um, I'm going to come in on what Sue said on syntax because I think it's a wonderful technique. Um, I've got something else to say in a minute, but I just wanted to mention this. Uh, Dr. Stuart Reed is doing some stuff at the moment around testing AI, and I was talking to him. I'm just thinking it's actually this time last year, um, but he was talking about something called metamorphic, metamorphic testing being applied to AI, and it's a development on syntax testing. So that's quite interesting. So it's, syntax testing has been around a long time, been seen as being quite academic, and its time might well be coming. So you, what you do is you're mutating, you're mutating the syntax to get error conditions and someone gave a talk on it at star east or star west last year or the last the year before as well so it's it, it's bumbling up again as a you know as, as a thing also if you look at how people define uh equivalence partitioning they always put in a bit saying and then add any other partitions which are all the error conditions well how do you think of them and the answer is syntax testing and mutation testing um, so that's just following on from what Sue said. My own one that I use a lot uh, around user experience and usability um, is heuristic evaluation as defined by Jacob Nielsen. And this has been around for decades. And it's a really, really simple set of heuristics that you can apply to any interface. 
to understand how the end user is going to act, react to it. You don't really have to be a specialist to use it. If you look on the NN Group uh, website, you can just pick up a load of information about it. And I, would, I, I think all testers should be using that whenever they're looking at an interface. It's saying, you know, when you look at this interface, can you recognize what you need to do or are you having to recall it? Is everything standardized through the interface? Is it speaking in the user's own language or in IT language? So that would be my recommendation. Um, I think if testers everywhere were using that, we would end up with better usability across the board, very, very simply and cheaply. Great, thank you. And, and that's something I, I didn't know and I think would be useful for the project in which I work. We have a lot of interfaces which are worth testing. Yeah, so that's a really good one. And uh, well, we are we have uh, 30 minutes left. Uh, so maybe to wrap up, we could go with um, again one of the questions from the um, uh, audience. And I had something uh, here. I think uh, we mentioned uh, many many different techniques. Um, and do you have any tips how to remember the different techniques in any order, or and how to uh, recall the techniques when you need them? Right. It's quite simply from my perspective, it's practice, 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 um, play with them, uh, sorts, um, almost develop little games with them. Um, just ask yourself questions. Um, I, uh, when I was doing decision tables and trying to fix those in my head, uh, I just posed myself a logic question that, uh, I saw a car drive past my window um, and I recognized the car and then it was a question as to who might be driving that car. Um, it could have been uh, the, the, the family that I knew had the car. It could have been the husband that was driving. It could have been the wife that was driving. Um, there were two children that could have been in the car and a dog. So it's unlikely that the dog was driving. So we can move the play around with the logic puzzle um, to work out which ones, you know, the technique will give you all the possibilities and you can say uh, it's unlikely the dog is driving. It's unlikely that one of the younger children could reach the pedals, but one of the older children could be driving. It's illegal, but they could still be driving. So playing with the techniques, setting yourself little logic puzzles, you get to feel more comfortable about them, and then they will naturally come to you. And going back to what we were saying at the, at the start of the conversation, um, certain techniques will fit more comfortably with you, and certain techniques you will have to play around with more. Um, I too started out as a developer, so I have a, a fondness for the white box testing techniques uh, in terms of you know, statement testing, um, branch decision combination testing. So just taking a piece of code and applying the technique to it uh, just to see the logic uh, pathways through a, a system. Just practice, practice, practice. Thank you. Isabel, would you like to add something? Completely agree. If we were professional musicians, we would be doing scales every day in order to prepare for the concert performance. 
we would be practicing every day. We would not be saying, oh, you know, I did scales when I was at music school and I don't need to do them anymore. When I go on to a project and I'm going to have to do some test design, I spend some time going through exercises, um, retrying the techniques, polishing them up again if I haven't used them for a while. So thinking, well, I haven't done syntax testing, for example, for a year or two, I need to sit and do that for a few days as an exercise to get my brain back into it. Um, practice, practice, practice. You can't just go on a course and then at the end of it, you know what to do. You wouldn't expect that with a piano lesson. You wouldn't expect it with a cooking lesson. You'd expect that you'd come away and you'd just keep practicing. And we need to do that. It's our pro pro we talk about professional practice. And the word practice is really important in that. You have to keep doing it. You're going to make mistakes. You know, Violetta was asking about is there a wrong way to do things? And one of the things about real life is, unlike in the courses, there is not a set of right answers. So you have to have the confidence to start thinking, does this feel right? That, that didn't go well. What went wrong there? And, and do that reflection in your own mind because nobody's going to come to you and say, this is the right answer in real life. In real life, it's, it's you, the system, and your brain working together. Um, so just, keep, just keep at it. Just keep at it. And Sue mentioned about uh, you know, things in real life. I can remember sitting in uh, the doctor's waiting room, waiting for... I can't remember what to see the nurse about something or other. And there was a poster up on the wall about resuscitating people in different situations. So it had the situation where the person's unconscious, but still breathing and got a pulse. And there were a couple of others, you know, um, I can't remember the order now, but I remember just looking at it for a long time and just thinking, well, there's three causes there. Are they breathing or not? Have they got a pulse or not? Are they conscious or not? So clearly there should be eight combinations. And then I just found myself sitting there thinking, right, so somebody's conscious, but they're not breathing and they haven't got a pulse. That's a zombie. And, and it's kind of like, just you just, once you're in the habit of it, you know, at the moment, all the different ways people are telling you you need to wash your hands. Look at all of those different ways and, and compare them and contrast them. And think, how would you test that? And you'll find the techniques are coming out to you. And that could be a control flow diagram or a state diagram um, or a decision table. Real life is full of things you can look at and think, yeah, there's a boundary there and nobody's tested it. Or I wonder what the partitions are. Or has somebody thought about that syntax? Just, just keep at it all the time. Yeah, I, I actually, um, uh, I bought my house and I, I'm, not, I'm never quite sure whether where I live is because I'm a tester or just the universe put me there because of that. Um, I live in Cumbria, which is a large county in the UK, uh, but my postcode for the house is Scottish. Um, I am a perfect border case in that um, the Scottish border is about a mile from my house. And because of the way that the postcode system is structured here in the UK, 
some properties, it's not just in the Scotland-England border, but it also occurs um, England-Wales border as well. But some properties in England have a Scottish postcode. So uh, somehow the universe gave me this house. So I am the perfect border case. And one of the things that I do if I'm confronted with a system that has postcodes is I'll type my postcode in. And if it comes up and says I'm in Scotland, I know that something needs looking at because I live in England. So I live in England, but I have a Scottish postcode. So it's, you know, definitely practice. And, you know, we are a strange breed as testers. We are, you know, as Adam pointed out, you know, we are paid to think differently. We are paid to ask the questions. So practicing thinking differently, um, instead of playing Sudoku on the train, print out a chunk of code and see if you can spot all the D uses, P uses and C uses, which is you know, a low level technique again. Um, it, pick out something, um, you know, the current COVID regulations here in the UK. We now have a three tier system that works differently as to whether you're in England, Scotland. The, the partitions and boundaries are just phenomenal. So you only need to um, pick up a newspaper and you can start playing the games with the uh, with the different techniques. I love your answers, ladies, especially that I think that this also is worth mentioning that you need to be humble, right? When you're a senior tester and you learned something 10 years ago, it doesn't mean that you can forget about it. You should you should always try to dust off the, the, the old techniques, the old things that you have learned because they might be useful later on, right? So they, they might be used in, useful in your life. And also, also be humble in the sense that the longer you've been doing this, the more you see people, so that the old techniques, yes, hold on to them, but the more you see people coming up after you with different ideas, different approaches, new tools, new ways of doing things, new systems that need to be tested in different ways. So I think uh, humbleness and, and, you know, the reason that we ask the questions is because we know we don't know the answers. So you have to know that it's it's okay to be the person in the room asking the stupid question. Thank you for that. Mm. We know that we don't know. I think that should be like a hashtag for the for today's meetup and, and, and a good like a um, uh, ending uh, of the questioning part because uh, we are very close to the end. Uh, any last words from you, right? We, remember this would be like a wrap up of the whole today meeting and after that i will just uh, close everything with um with um thank you and so on maybe we can start with sue uh I, the only thing is i can think of is what i've just said in terms of practice 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 have fun because i i do think techniques are fun um they are enlightening and encouraging and it just uh great fun to play with Thank you, Sue. Isabel, any last words um, from you? Yeah, I'm going to follow on from Caleb's question, which is there are loads of resources out there. So I've held out a couple of books. Um, there's also um, a book that uh, is a case study taking you through applying the standard, um, including the techniques that are covered in the standard. Um, and that is considerably cheaper than 
buying the standard itself. Um, and there's, there's this book, um, which is actually a book about debugging embedded systems. But the thinking style in this is exactly what you want for applying techniques. So there's plenty of resources and help. And um, just do it. Just do it, you know. And again, hashtag just do it. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dan, for today. It was really uh, amazing. Uh, I have so much more questions here and here, which I would like to ask, but the time flies and then the, the podcast couldn't last for longer than one hour, one and a half hour because, yeah? Send us the questions and we'll see if we can do the answers. Yeah, that would be great. We might be able to, if we can answer any of them. I, I mean, I've, so I've just dumped you in that haven't I <laughs> I would be happy to answer them I'll ask soon after as if she's happy to join in with <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to answer them too yeah <laughs> yep you you pushed Sue over the train right yeah you, we and Sue <laughs> will do it right <laughs> okay uh, sure I think it's a good idea and um, the answer could be also added to the uh, description of the of the meetup in the in the podcast form and also posted on the meetup page as a comment or something right so so I think that's a very good Mm, uh, idea. Um, at the end, I would also like to thank uh, the sponsor of today Midcast, the Quara, um, uh, QA Craft for Jira, a plugin that helps you manage your tests. Uh, thanks to them, I didn't have the limit for uh, participants and also are able to pay uh, my bills. <laughs> uh, so uh, I would like to really uh, thank them a lot for the support. Uh, but the biggest thanks goes to Isabel and Sue for participating here, for giving me uh, so much great answers. And uh, again, in my little tester's head, making even more questions that I could imagine I could have um, to you. There were a lot of uh, meat uh, or lentils, if you're a vegan, um, in, the, in the talk. Uh, so that, I think, was really insightful um, today and I really can't wait until I will listen to it again and post it as a as a as a podcast of course I will let you guys know thank you guys for that thank you for inviting us